You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. conditions apply. See website for details. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's obvious. Misfit. Sean. Lee. David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Sir Rancid Cheese, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Vasios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. There is this historiographic tradition that becomes particularly prevalent around the 18th and 19th centuries that I'm just really not fond of. And I know this is about as nitpicky, first-world problem as you can get, but it bugs me. Think about the great battles of the 17 and 1800s. They're almost always named after the place that they happened. Just in American history, you've got, you know, all your Civil War battles, Bull Run, Antietam. You've got all your Revolutionary War battles, Yorktown. Or you can look at the really great battles. I'm thinking in particular here about the Napoleonic Wars. You know, it's Marengo, Austerlitz, These are famous names because of the battles fought there. But when you look at maritime warfare, battles often aren't as conclusive as those fought on land. When you and your enemy face off across the field of battle and lock arms, at some point, one of you is going to fall back. Someone is going to surrender the field. So even if it's not a decisive, destroy-your-enemy kind of victory, it's still a victory. Somebody wins that battle. But at sea, oftentimes, nobody wins. You know, ships were so dependent on the wind that sometimes, oftentimes, ships would square up and try to fight, but they just really couldn't get to it. 
eventually both sides just kind of leave. And that's not a story worth writing about in the newspaper. You know, defeat Napoleon and everybody celebrates the great victory of Trafalgar. Let the Dutch roll up and burn some of your best ships and everyone laments the tragedy of Medway. Those are stories worth writing about, so they get a name. But when a battle is inconclusive, like so many battles at sea were, they don't get a cool, distinctive name. You know, they're not the Battle of Beachy Head, they just get the most generic kind of name that you can imagine. This is episode 307, The Action of August 1702. And that's what bugs me. You know, you could open up your textbook, turn to chapter 12, and look at the title, The Action of August 1702, and you know this is not going to end in a decisive victory or a tragic defeat. It's going to be inconclusive. No one is walking away from this battle victorious. But that doesn't mean that a battle like what we're going to talk about today isn't extremely consequential. Because in our story of high seas piracy, the action of August 1702 is about as consequential as they come. When this battle is over, in the aftermath, it's going to showcase the weakness of a fleet system in a place like the West Indies. Not to say that fleets weren't powerful, they were, but they're also very expensive. If you're not winning big victories with your very expensive fleet, you're getting a poor return on your investment. And at that point, maybe, it's time to consider outsourcing some of that labor. When we left off last time, Vice Admiral John Benbow had just received word that England had declared war on France and Spain. He was joined by Captain William Whetstone, whom he promoted to Rear Admiral. Benbow sent Whetstone off on a mission to track down Admiral Jean-Baptiste Ducasse, while Benbow himself set out to track down the Spanish treasure fleet. Benbow was too late to catch the treasure fleet before it left the region. Whetstone, though, had a bit better luck. Admiral Benbow ordered him to patrol the region of Port Saint-Louis, in northern Saint-Domingue, not too far from Tortuga. This was a location that Jean-Baptiste Ducasse was likely to stop off. And even if he didn't, it would give Whetstone a chance to harass some French shipping and perhaps some French privateers. Now, Ducasse was the governor of Saint-Domingue, and he'd been in that position since 1691, He's the man who saw the French West Indies through the Nine Years' War. But about a year back, he was called to France to report to the king. He still held the position of governor, officially, but later that year, a lieutenant governor named Joseph Donon arrived to relieve him and serve as acting governor. Ducasse's talents were needed elsewhere. See, Ducasse was among the greatest naval commanders of his time. Now that war was very clearly coming, his talents would be wasted simply administering a colony. He would serve France much better 
at the head of a fleet. So King Louis called him back to France, and he was given a fresh new fleet to command. He was given orders should war break out between France and England, and he was given an errand. He was to carry the new governor of the Spanish colony at Cartagena to his post. This new governor of Cartagena was someone that the French king, Louis XIV, personally vetted and approved of. He was a very pro-French Spanish governor. The fleet that Ducasse was given to command was impressive. France was spending quite a bit more money than the English were on their West Indian fleet. As Sam Willis writes in the Admiral Benbow, quote, The French battle fleets sent to the West Indies were vast, far larger than necessary, and as much a political statement of goodwill to Louis' mistrustful Spanish allies as a functional requirement. They were also all fresh. They sailed from France, spent a short time in the Caribbean, and then returned to Europe. Binbo's force, by contrast, was relatively small, weakened by sickness, stricken by poor canvas, and had already been in the Caribbean for eight months. End quote. If William Whetstone were to encounter the fleet of Admiral Ducasse, he was to harass them, but not to engage in open battle. I mean, he just didn't have the ships to do so. His fleet of frigates would be perfect for harassment. But if he encountered the French fleet, he was to send his fastest vessel off to inform Admiral Benbow that Ducasse had been spotted. Whetstone kept up his search, looking for any sign, any news of the French fleet, but so far he was disappointed in that search. But he wasn't sitting idle. On August 2nd, 1702, Whetstone attempted to capture the Spanish town of Arecibo in Puerto Rico. Arecibo was not a large, powerful port city. It was a small town on the coast but it was exactly the kind of small town that Whetstone thought he could capture without devoting too many of his resources. He sent what he thought was a perfectly capable force to do the job, two of his frigates. But when they arrived at Arecibo, those frigates found they had trouble getting in close to the city. See, the West Indies were just different from continental Europe. You know, back home, you'd build your port city on a proper deep-water harbor that had proper defenses built up since, you know, the Middle Ages before, since Rome, probably. They were designed specifically so that big ships could dock at the harbor there. But that's not how things worked in the West Indies. For about 50 years now, Buccaneers and filibusters, corsairs, pirates, privateers, all manner of sea rovers had been harassing every Spanish colony they could find. And you know, a big port city like Havana or Cartagena, that was built like one of those old European port cities with proper defenses. But Spanish settlers in smaller towns had learned long ago that building their small towns on deep-water ports was just asking for trouble, 
because the English would send in a couple of frigates, bombard your city, and then demand everything. Instead, they built their ports on relatively shallow water. Bigger ships like frigates would have to anchor further out, probably, hopefully, far enough out that they would not be able to reach the town with their guns. Which is exactly what happened to Whetstone's two frigates. Instead, they had to send two rowboats filled with marines to take the township, a force of about 40 men total. But the Spanish knew just what to do in this situation. They'd faced plenty of French and English buccaneers over the years. They knew how to defend their town. But they didn't have any gunpowder. You know, they had cannons, but no way to fire them. They had muskets, but no way to fire those. Instead, they were armed with spears and pitchforks and machetes, tools that farmers would use. As the English closed in on the shore, this ragtag militia force marched out to meet them. The English decided to fire on the assembled militia on the shore, but all the while their boats were bobbing up and down in the surf. They just missed terribly. You know, that was the kind of move that an experienced privateer might be able to pull off, but relatively green English marines did not have that skill set. Then a rain of stones and spears fell on the English in their boats, which was kind of a novel attack. You know, they expected gunfire and instead spears, but it's not like they had shields or armor or anything. They're just getting destroyed out there. One of the boats never even made it to shore. So many men were injured, they just stopped and turned around. The other boat managed to make landfall, but they'd already wasted their first shots before landing, and they didn't have time to reload because the Spanish militia is right there. They had to draw swords, and remember, this was only about 20 men. The assembled militia of even a small town, like Arecibo, could muster twice that, three times that easily. It may have been soldiers with sabers against farmers with pitchforks, but the farmers had the advantage. In the end, the English force suffered 22 casualties out of 40 before retreating, and limping back to Whetstone's fleet. In the meantime, though, William Whetstone had spotted Jean-Baptiste Ducasse. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. 
I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Admiral Benbow, after his disappointment and missing his opportunity to capture the treasure fleet, was also searching for Ducasse, but he was also not sitting idle. Benbow was doing what he did best. Sailing out, engaging the enemy, and enjoying victory after victory. His first action during the War of the Spanish Succession was an attack on the city of Leogan in Saint-Domingue. His fleet blockaded the harbor there and then dove into the defensive lines of the French ships. The English moved in swiftly and just had their way with the much smaller French force. In the encounter, Benbow captured a 30-gun frigate as well as two merchantmen loaded with supplies. Two other merchant ships were sunk in the harbor and a third was burned. Now, it's not like Benbow won a great victory here. I mean, it was good to capture a frigate and a couple of ships full of supplies, but Leogan did not stand any kind of chance against him. He was just beating up on him but he also did not waste much time in his engagement there. He was just passing by, searching for Ducasse, when he saw an opportunity to absolutely wreck a French port and, you know, took it. It took him the better part of an afternoon. As he was mopping up the operation, though, one of Whetstone's ships arrived on the scene. He was carrying that news that the fleet of Jean-Baptiste Ducasse had been spotted, to the east. Ducasse's route probably was intended to look something like this. He would stop first at San Juan in Puerto Rico. There he could collect supplies and learn the latest news. Then they would sail over to Santo Domingo on the southern coast of Hispaniola before finally heading southwest on their way to Cartagena where he would drop off the new governor. But on his way to San Juan, Jean-Baptiste Ducasse was spotted by William Whetstone. So instead of continuing on to the city, Ducasse made some quick calculations. See, the new governor, Juan Diaz Pimienta y Salvidar, a minor Spanish noble, was on board his flagship. But Salvidar was not just to be the new governor. He had a bigger job than that under the new authority of the Spanish Bourbons. He was to rebuild the province of Cartagena and turn it into something more, the Viceroyalty of Cartagena. And then he would serve as the Viceroy there. It was a big job. And he wasn't just sailing to Cartagena to serve, you know, a couple of years. He was moving to the West Indies. He had his whole household with him. His wife, his children, all of the other women that were needed to run his household, like nurses and ladies-in-waiting, and 
an office that was unique to the upper class of Spanish society called a duena. Add to that all of the servants and maids that were part of his household and all of the officials that were coming with him to aid, to you know, do the job of running the colony, and you've got dozens of innocent people on board the flagship. All of them very important. Ducasse could not risk anything happening to them. So he ordered a little over half his fleet to break off and intercept the English fleet under William Whetstone. Ducasse, though, had to abandon his plans to stop off at San Juan and instead rushed around the western edge of Puerto Rico, and then he opened up full sail and headed southwest toward Cartagena with as much speed as he could muster. To the west, Admiral Benbow, with this news that Ducasse had been spotted and was probably heading to Cartagena, he rushed around the western edge of Saint-Domingue, and then south toward Cartagena, in an attempt to intercept Ducasse. So while these two fleets are rushing to meet one another, let's talk about their relative strength. Jean-Baptiste Ducasse had seven ships under his command. The new Cartagenan governor was moved to a relatively small and extraordinarily crowded transport ship. Ducasse could not risk them on his flagship any longer, and if an attack did come, they would be able to escape while the fleet engaged whoever was attacking. Ducasse's flagship was a 68-gun, third-rate ship of the line. In addition, he had three fourth-rate ships of the line of either 50 or 60 guns, one 30-gun frigate, four sloops, and a fire ship. That's an excellent and very versatile fleet. Binbo, on the other hand, had his 70-gun flagship Breda, under the flag Captain Fogg. Then there was the 64-gun Defiance, under Captain Kirkby. There was the 60-gun Windsor, under Captain Constable, the 54-gun Greenwich, under Captain Wade, and three fourth-rate ships of 48 guns each. And I'm sorry to throw so many names at you all at once, but they are kind of important. You know, they're not going to be on the test, but I do want to mention them here. Those fourth-rate ships of the line were the Ruby, under Captain Walton, the Pendennis, under Captain Hudson, and the Falmouth, under Captain Vincent. Now, both Ducasse and Benbow were pretty familiar with the geography of the Spanish Main. They knew their way around the northern coast of South America. The last time Ducasse had visited the region, he was actually leading a fleet in a blockade of Cartagena. That was during the Nine Years' War. Benbow had been there much more recently, when he blockaded Cartagena to demand the release of those two Scottish ships bound for Darien. But since they were both so familiar with the region, both men knew that there was one location they needed to keep in mind. The Cape of Santa Marta. For Ducasse, who would be on the defensive in any engagement, the Cape of Santa Marta was exactly where he did not want to meet the enemy. On the other hand, it was exactly where Benbo was aiming. At the time, the coast of the Cape of Santa Marta was empty, Today, there's the city of Santa Marta, but at the time, there was still no settlement. 
Just a few miles inland, there's this massive mountain range that kind of dominates the horizon. If the French were to lose the battle and wreck upon the shore, they would be left helpless with no hope of aid. If the English were to lose the battle and wreck upon the shore, they would be able to dig in and defend themselves with no worry of enemy soldiers marching in. Beyond that, the currents at the Cape of Santa Marta would benefit whoever was sailing in from the west, in this case, John Benbow. As Ducasse approached the Cape of Santa Marta on 18 August 1702, his lookouts were keeping a wary eye on the horizon. They made the Cape about dusk, but then they decided to slow down. The English could be lying in wait just around the bend, and it would be most disadvantageous to meet them there, so they kind of waited until morning. But come dawn, a French lookout called Voile sail. The English fleet was spotted and bearing down on them. And right here, I kind of can't help but put myself in the shoes of Jean-Baptiste Ducasse. You know, tactically speaking, he was not in a great position. Benbow had pulled off exactly what he did not want to happen. He was going to be intercepted at the very tip of the cape, putting Benbow in an advantageous position. But I suspect that the emotion that dominated Ducasse at this moment, more than fear or trepidation or worry, was excitement. You know, he was a French naval hero, and here, on the open water, he met England's greatest admiral. In only a few short hours, he would face off against one of the greatest commanders in the world. As much as any sword fight or pistols at high noon or, you know, a good game of chess, this was going to be a duel between two masters of their craft. And Ducasse had one major advantage in his favor. The wind was blowing in from the east. He would have full maneuverability while the English would be hampered. Thanks to this unfortunate pattern of wind, Binbow had a tough time actually getting to the line of battle. You know, he kind of had to zigzag back and forth, all of his ships trying to catch any gust they could just to get to a place where they could finally engage the enemy. Now, if their roles had been reversed, if their positions had been reversed, that would have put Ducasse in an almost unbelievably powerful position. All of those smaller ships he had, the sloops and the frigate, they would have been able to make use of the less powerful winds, much better than the large warships could. Had Ducasse been coming in from the west, he could have planted his warships on the line and then sent his smaller craft around to flank the enemy. He could have caught Benbow in a crossfire, but that's not how it played out. Benbow, really all he had were large warships, so he didn't have that kind of maneuverability in this battle which makes the opening hours of this fight kind of boring. Ducasse was able to pull back a little bit to a more advantageous position and then line up for battle and just kind of wait. Meanwhile, Benbow was busy struggling. Finally, though, Benbow managed to get his ships into line. And with that, he gave the order 
that began the first proper fleet battle since the Battle of Beachy Head ten years prior. Neither commander was unaware of just how important this fight would be. The English ships advanced on the French. But almost immediately it became clear that two of the English ships just couldn't keep up. The Windsor and the Pendennis were lagging far behind, struggling to catch the wind. They just couldn't do it. But then two other ships in his fleet began to lag, the Greenwich and the Defiance. Benbow sent up furious flags, ordering them to open up full sail and hold the line. They needed this if they were going to win this battle. The captains of the Greenwich and the Defiance did as ordered, but it took a little while, and eventually, finally, they started to think about maybe getting around to it. They were moving incredibly slowly, though. By about noon, there were only three English ships still managing to hold the line of battle. The Breda, the Ruby, and the Falmouth. Benbow, aboard the Breda, ordered the other two ships to strike sail and wait for the fleet to gather. Those three ships wouldn't be enough to take on the French alone. They needed everyone. And then, everything went to hell. Captain Vincent of the Falmouth opened fire on the French frigate. Whether he failed to see the flag ordering him to stop, or whether he ignored it, it's hard to say. Either way, though, a firefight began, and the Breda and Ruby were pulled into it. Now that the cannons had been loosed, the rest of the French fleet sailed up and opened fire as well. Now, to their credit, the English ships held firm. They took a pounding, but they did not surrender. They held out until the Defiance and the Windsor had caught up with them to join the battle. Now things were going to turn around, right? Well, not quite. The Defiance and the Windsor got into position and rolled their cannons out of their gun ports and shot off a broadside, and then they reloaded and shot off another broadside, but at that point they seemed to be kind of drifting away from the line, just slipping back out of range of the French guns. And I'm sure at this point their captains were like, Oh no, stop, we'd better get back into line. But they failed to do so. The other two ships in the fleet, including the Greenwich, were trying to catch up, but at this point they were about a full five leagues behind the line of battle. And I imagine that if I were Jean-Baptiste Ducasse right now, I would be feeling disappointed. You know, this is the first fleet battle in a decade against the greatest admiral that England had to offer, and his ships weren't fighting. I mean, what's going on here? At this point, had he so desired, Ducasse could have destroyed the English utterly. He had the firepower to do so, but it wouldn't have been honorable to do so. Instead, he decided to pull his ships back. He was going to withdraw and leave the English to do whatever they were doing. Benbow, 
though, in the Breda and Captain Walton of the Ruby, they began a pursuit. Which is crazy. You know, they've got two ships versus an entire fleet here, but they did it anyway. At which point I imagine Jean Ducasse, feeling disappointed and a bit put out at not getting the battle he'd hoped for, I imagine him turning around, realizing that Benbow was following him and being all like, you know, sacre bleu. One of his ships, though, just paused, turned a bit, and fired on the ruby. A full broadside that bloodied her nose and damaged the mast. It wasn't enough to destroy the ruby, but it was enough to pull her out of the fight. And instead of, you know, ordering another broadside... The ship rejoined the fleet, and they continued to pull away. To me, that feels like a warning. You know, hey man, we're, we're leaving, so just, just stop. But Benbow refused to stop. His one ship, a powerful warship, yes, but his one ship continued the chase against the entire French fleet. And believe it or not, miraculously, at this point he engaged the French frigate and captured it. It was a daring, bold nighttime maneuver, but he captured the French frigate, which nobody saw coming. And it was a victory of real note here, because that frigate had been an English ship until just a few short years ago when the French had captured her. So that should be enough to, you know, salvage your honor, right? You marched out, you recaptured the legionary eagle, now you can go home. But that's not what Benbow did. He continued chasing the French for two more days. And I'm almost tempted to wonder here if Ducasse sort of let that ship get captured. You know, put a skeleton crew on board told it to lag behind a bit and surrender whenever the English got in close. A bit of a salve to a man of equal rank who maybe Ducasse respected. A way for him to salvage his honor and then end this pointless pursuit. But here Benbow was, getting a little bit too close for comfort. So Ducasse gave an order. His ship, his flagship in this case, paused, turned, and loaded their cannon with chain shot. Jean-Baptiste Ducasse gave the order to fire. Now, this strikes me as an incredibly honorable move on the part of Admiral Ducasse. You know, in using chain shot, he's trying to damage the rigging, damage the sails, maybe damage the mast. He's trying to stop Benbow's ship without doing an inordinate amount of damage or killing too many men, just put an end to this thing. But one of those chains caught Admiral John Benbow at the knee. It tore half his leg off. Ducasse, apparently, did not want to do an inordinate amount of damage to the English ship. He just wanted to stop this pointless chase. And now that... Admiral Benbow had been gravely wounded, finally, as you might expect. He continued chasing the French. He just refused to give up. And I don't understand what's going through his head at this point. I mean, it's almost like a kind of madness must have gripped him, right? 
Who does that? He had his surgeon cauterize the wound, they tied a tourniquet around his leg to staunch any bleeding that might start, and then they strapped him to a chair on the quarterdeck. Admiral Benbow pulled out his looking glass and continued giving orders. After a couple of hours of continuing this chase, Captain Kirkby of the Defiance arrived on the scene. He caught up, and he pulled up alongside the Breda, saw what had happened to the Admiral, and took command. This clearly was madness. Benbow was not thinking straight. Continuing this chase would just lead to the loss of hundreds of lives and one of England's greatest ships. So he put a stop to it. Benbow, apparently finally realizing the futility of his action, relented. He sent the ruby and that newly captured frigate back to Port Royal, and then he ordered the rest of the fleet to gather on his position, where he would deal with what he saw as rank insubordination. Next time, we're going to talk about the fallout from this inconclusive battle. That fallout is going to change everything about the war in the West Indies. Back in England, Queen Anne is going to make the decision to begin issuing letters of mark. She's going to do so to men like William Dampier, Woods Rogers, and Benjamin Hornigold. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who helps to support this show. Everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. Everybody who has recommended this show. And all of our supporters on Patreon. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. So thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit Down, a Mafia History Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight